Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like me, one simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating also makes this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that'll make this type of abuse worse. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma, and Rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need real support, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a session today. On today's episode, we have a member of our community. We're going to call her Laurel. She spent nearly two decades constantly scrambling to please and be enough for her unpleasable and abusive husband. She had vetted her partner for nearly a decade before marriage, and she believed that he was the exact opposite of her abusive upbringing and really genuinely thought that she was getting something different. And so little did she know that she had quite literally chosen a partner who was exactly like her abusive father in the end. So we're going to talk more about that. But the other part that's really interesting that I can't wait to get into is that this love bombing stuff that she experienced. I know a lot of our listeners have experienced that. She did experience love bombing and her husband progressively gaslit her into believing that she was the source of every difficulty in their relationship and that her childhood abuse actually made her inferior and damaged. So he used that against her and weaponized that against her. So she spent basically the entire marriage in therapy working on herself to be enough. He was unfaithful. He also abused alcohol And all of that seemed to fuel his contempt for her. A lot of us have that experience. So without further ado, I want to get it straight from her. Welcome, Laurel. Thanks, Anne. You're about four years out of living with him, right? That's correct. So let's go back to the beginning. When you're vetting him for these years, looking for someone who's not abusive, keeping in mind your own history of abuse from your own family, And you talk about that love bombing at that time. What did that look like for you over those years? I actually did not know at the beginning that I was looking at love bombing. I didn't know what I was dealing with because I did not know anything about narcissism or any of the terms that go along with it. So what it looked like at the time was we were friends for seven years before we ever started dating. And he used to call me on the phone and just leave a voicemail saying, marry me and hang up. And not say anything else, but because he was always asking me to marry him, and I thought he was just kidding, I thought it was a joke, and I didn't take it seriously. So we continued our friendship, mostly long distance, for several years. We met in college, um, but then went away to our various experiences after that. And he would continue to leave these voicemails for me, and would continue to 
be what I thought was a friend at the time. When we started dating, he didn't do those things at that time. And he seemed like he had become a very mature person who was extremely patient, was very sure of himself, was deep into his relationship with God and exploring his faith. He was kind outwardly, it seemed to other people. But what really struck me the most was how centered and calm and patient he seemed and being able to handle adversity and how deep it seemed he was becoming in his faith. So although I experienced love bombing, I did not know that's what it was at the time. And it seemed to me that I was dealing with a person who was mature and was honest and decent. That's what I thought I was getting into when we started dating. This is interesting because it's not the form of love bombing in like flowers or extravagant dates or something like that. But what you're also describing is the type of grooming that is focused on image management, right? Yes. To make sure that you know, it doesn't seem like it, but that he's healthy and patient and spiritual and et cetera. Correct. And what I have learned about narcissism since has helped to put some of the pieces together for me so that I see that he actually does that in all of his relationships, whether they are professional relationships, in his artistic pursuits, whether they are day job work relationships, community relationships. I have seen him do this same pattern with everyone. Does he use different things with different people? Yes. I have noticed this too. So for example, if someone's really interested in science, then he's becoming more and more in tune with the scientific community or something. And if someone over here is more interested in being a vegan, then he's, you know, learning more about the environment or is he sort of like a chameleon in where he's really growing and learning is what the other person is interested in? Absolutely. And I not only looking back, see that he did that with me regarding my faith, but also in our artistic pursuits, we both majored in the same artistic field, which is how we met. And when he was in graduate school for his artistic pursuit, one of his primary professors and advisors was very faithful and was studying to become a man of the cloth, like a a religious leader in his community. And my ex at the time, perhaps because of that professor's interest, became very interested in his faith. And also, I think because of my interest in faith, that was something that he mirrored back to me as values that he held. After we got married, I did see that while we did attend like a marriage workshop together and We talked about our faith and prayed together more at the beginning. The deeper we got in our relationship, the more I realized that that wasn't who he really was. And at the end of our relationship, he actually blamed me for all the time that he had ever spent in church, made it out to be my fault and that he should have been at home performing his artistic pursuits instead. And what he said to me was, I did everything I was supposed to do. I prayed, I gave money, I served in the church and all these positions, and God didn't give me what I wanted with his talking about his artistic desires. And he said, therefore, F God. 
and he basically abandoned his faith. Like God was a vending machine. I now wonder if his faith was ever genuine or if he was just mirroring. Or even thinking he could groom God. Yeah. Like, if I convince God that I care about him, even though I don't, if I convince God that I'm obedient, even though I'm not, if I convince God that I'm this certain type of person, then I'm going to get these blessings. So say my church people. Correct. Yeah. So that behavior is consistent throughout all of the relationships I saw him hold in jobs, in the arts, and clearly with me and with his faith as well. So his grooming was very systematic. Yes. Yes. Extreme. Yeah. And toward the end of the relationship, when I started to get a little bit smarter, that things were really off and I was starting to Google, you know, all these things and I'm starting to read narcissism, narcissism, narcissism. And I'm like, what's going on here? I found some questionnaires online for narcissistic behaviors and relationship, and I stripped the title off of it. I separated the questions out and put them into an Excel spreadsheet, and we both took the questionnaire. And he self-assessed as very high in narcissistic behaviors and relationship and admitted in that questionnaire that he'd even lied to people in his professional career about his successes and qualifications in order to impress them and get ahead, which was a shock to me. I did not know that he did that. And also he lied with intent, even on the questionnaire, because there were direct questions about like stealing and hiding money and other things that I later found proof that he did, that he lied about on the questionnaire. So he would have assessed much higher. He did assess at a problematic level and it would have been much higher if he told the truth about all the things I later found out. That's interesting because you would think they would know how to take the test to not score highly. So it's interesting that maybe they don't. I don't know. We don't diagnose here at BTR, right? We're not a place that says, okay, come here. We'll help you diagnose your ex. What we do here is women come to us and say, these are the behaviors that I'm experiencing. And we're like, oh, that's abusive. That's abusive. So regardless of the cause of the quote unquote cause, right, Uh, whether they have a brain lesion or they're a narcissist or they're just abusive or something, right? We don't ever quite know the reason. Our job here at BTR is to help get women to safety, to help them start making their way to being emotionally and psychologically safe. So the reason I bring that up is I'm not I'm not an expert in them taking tests, but that that strikes me as really interesting. Were you how did you feel about that when you got that back? I was surprised by some of the things that he said that he did. Like especially the one about lying to other people professionally was a big surprise to me. So that's just where I started to get a clue that things were more wrong than I thought they were. But he wanted you to know that. Yes. And that's a very interesting point because, yes, he could have lied more. He lied about a lot of the things that had to do with me specifically, but did admit some of the others. And we can only speculate as to why he did that and what the motive was. And we you know, obviously don't know whatever issue he actually has going on. But yes, this is a pattern of pervasive pattern of behaviors. Absolutely. I wonder if it's sort of a false um, vulnerability. Mm, That's interesting. 
so many women will tell me, well, he did say that, that he had had an affair, you know, with his previous wife, or he did say that he struggled with porn in high school, you know, so they feel like he's being honest because if he were lying, he wouldn't have said that. So it's sort of like a, you can't know if they're being honest unless they unless they tell you a little bit because they have to seem a little bit vulnerable and so they pick and choose what they want you to know and I think that's probably what was going on there is this a pseudo vulnerability in order to groom some more in order to control the narrative of yeah I would never lie to you but yeah I have lied to these other people everybody does that Right. This is it. This is the acceptable form of lying over here. I'm going to admit to that because then it will make me seem more vulnerable. Yes, I think that's very likely the case. And when I look back at the things that he did admit to before we ever started dating, they were things like about poor him, how this or that relationship didn't work out and he just doesn't have any luck with relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of that poor me victimhood, but it was more like a hapless, oh, I'm just not lucky kind of victimhood. Mm -hmm. Rather than a outright, I was abused by my previous girlfriend or something. Correct. He did have a lot of resentment for other people who had money, wealth, status, um, people who had the kinds of professional successes in the arts that he wanted to have. So I did see a lot of that, but he masked the other things. Before we get back to the conversation, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue. Or they try to quote unquote, treat the victim and the abuser in the same setting. That's unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. So you've got grooming, obviously, while you're dating, and then you marry, and you continue to have grooming episodes. The grooming periods don't look like abuse at the time. They feel normal and good. If 100% of the relationship was awful and felt terrible, women could pretty much figure out what was going on sooner rather than later, but they don't recognize that those good times are grooming in their abuse as well. So this is happening. When do you start to see changes in how he's treating you? And what did that look like? When we were dating, he made sure to tell me all the time how he encouraged me to be myself, how it was okay to make mistakes, how it was okay to not be perfect, how I was allowed to show my vulnerabilities. But after we got married, the way that I was treated was different than that. So for example, we lived with his parents for the first few months after we were married. We lived uh, in an extra space that they had. And I recall him coming back home from work one day where I was working on my thesis at the time. And apparently I had not cleaned the room to his standards. And he was very angry and very disapproving and withholding from me. And this was just within like the first month of marriage. And I remembered being surprised because it was so very different than the person that he had shown me for the past several years. 
prior to that. Um, so that's really my first inkling that things were not the way that they had been before we got married. Was your relationship mostly long distance before you got married? Yes, it was. We met in college and undergrad and we knew each other for two years before we ended up going. Um, I stayed to continue my undergrad and he went on for graduate school. So we were a few years apart in school. I think that's interesting too, because when you say it changed, this happened with my relationship as well. I, I actually didn't meet him in person until the total was only five months. I knew him like online and through phone calls and stuff for three months. And then I knew him in person for two months before I married him. Smart. Yeah. Anyway, I realized that when I thought he's changed, it wasn't that. It's just that I'd never actually been around him in person a lot and that what he said was different than what he did. Is that kind of your experience too, where he'd say, oh yeah, it's so important to do this. But then when he was actually there, he didn't act according to the way that he had talked. I only saw that change happen after marriage. Mm -hmm. So like you, we had a lot of telephone conversations. We wrote letters, we wrote emails, you know, because that was way back in the day. We didn't have all this uh, digital, you know, video and all the other things we have now. And it wasn't until like when we were together, when we were dating and before we got married, he was very like walking the talk as far as during the short periods of time that we were together. But again, this is impression management, like you said. And after we got married is when it all changed. But in addition to that, another point that you made is that absolutely not, like no woman would want to stay in a marriage where it was terrible all the time, because then you're right, it would be become obvious to us that something is wrong. Way after the fact, I, I read Lendy Bancroft's book, Why Does He Do That? And it was very eye-opening for me. And something he says in the book is that the good periods, just like you said, are as critical to the abuse cycle as everything else. And so there were plenty of good periods where it seemed like, oh, we've turned a corner again. Like he's not raging at me anymore. He's not throwing things. He's not breaking things. He's not, you know, so while there were some overt things, it was the covert stuff in between that I didn't recognize and the good periods helped to mask that. Well, and that's their intent. It doesn't only just help to mask it. It's the intent of the grooming is to mask Correct. it. And I think it is abuse. Those good periods are also abuse because it's not genuine. The intent is to control and the intent is to control the narrative. And that's so heartbreaking Like to realize Ugh, stab in our hearts when we realize that those good times weren't actually good for us. They were bad for us. Yes, it was very painful to look back. And also for me, in my particular situation, it was painful for me to look back and realize that the kind of relationship that I thought I had and the love that I thought I had was not reciprocated in the way that I perceive love. So Looking back, it's painful for me to say, I don't think my husband ever loved me the way that, that I perceive love should be. And the other thing that's hard to understand, I think, for us is that we genuinely love them. Correct. And it's, it's like a true, real love. And there was no grooming on our part. We were just being ourselves, wrapping our head around that. It's just, ugh, it's the worst. When it comes to pornography, when did you realize that 
there was a pornography issue that he was using. I did not see any evidence of any kind of issue with pornography or problems with sex. In fact, he told me that he was intentionally celibate for seven years for one period of his life because that was important to him. So I had no idea that any of that was going on until after we were no longer living with his parents. We had moved to another state and I was working on my thesis one day and I went to go look up something on the internet and I started to type an address and all of this stuff came up all these other addresses like this huge long list of addresses that started with like the same character I started typing and it was all these porn sites and so I had no idea until then that this was happening and I approached him about it because number one I was horrified and I felt ashamed and I was embarrassed because I felt like something about me must be wrong that I'm not enough for you that you need to go look at porn and we had this conversation and he was angry at me which was interesting but in addition to that i was also upset because that computer held all of our professional artistic work my thesis his professional artistic work and if it got infected with something from one of these porn sites we could have lost everything Laurel and I are going to pause the conversation here and continue next week, so stay tuned. If this podcast was helpful to you, please help us reach other women by pushing that follow or subscribe button and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping get the word out. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.